I want to read the word of God for today that Pastor Luke will be preaching this morning. So let's open the Bible at Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 12 until 14. And it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness and humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you may also must forgive. And above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of God. And now let's pray. God, we do thank you for the Haskos and for Disciples Church and the other uh, brothers and sisters in Christ in Disciples Church and in Tirana. Uh, what, a beautiful, what a beautiful thought it is for us Christians here in America to think about the power of the gospel and how you are you're opening the eyes of the blind, not just here in America, not just in our families and in this community, but throughout the world. And we know, we know of real stories, personal stories. We know of people. We've, we've come to love and, and consider uh, not just people in Albania, but brothers and sisters that, are, that, that we're co-laboring with for the gospel. And, and it's because you are at work in Albania. And we do pray for the, the ministry that, that is going on there uh, through the local church. We pray for Erlene and Claudie and Marcel and Danila and all the other uh, leaders in the church that you would keep them faithful to your word, that they would not shrink back from the gospel uh, as they feel pressure from the world around them, from family members who think it's foolishness to believe in Christ and to follow Christ and to change your life because of Christ. May they find refreshment and joy when they are persecuted because of the name of Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would protect them, that you would grow them not just in breath but in depth as they pursue maturity in Christ and that you would, you would continue to bless this partnership, this friendship, this relationship that we have between Disciples Church and Woodridge. Please, Father, give us wisdom and strength to continue to do the work that you've called us to do as local churches. Father, as we always do when we gather, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering, who are mourning, who are grieving, who are going through great hardships. We pray, Lord, that um, if they're here, that they would be refreshed and nourished by your word. And if they're not, that we would go to them, that you would be working in their hearts to remind them of the truth, remind them of your love and the goodness of, of Christ and, and his gospel, that you would strengthen their faith in you as they go through whatever it is you have for them to go through. Father, please sustain and strengthen them in Christ. And Lord, as we, as we seek to, to not just hear and read, this passage, but to apply it. We pray for, for strength, for wisdom. Uh, this is a passage that is going to require us to, to take action, to take action in our life, in our relationships in this church. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to do that and to do it with, with love and with confidence that you will, you will work in our hearts as we do what you call us to do in this passage. We pray all of this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to sanctification, there are going to be things that we will need to stop doing if we are going to become more like Jesus. There are certain things that we're doing right now that need to stop. In last Sunday's passage, Colossians 3, 5 through 11, that was Paul's focus on what we who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ need to stop doing, what we need to, to put an end to. So Paul started in, in that passage in verse 5 by commanding the Christian to put sin to death. 
to kill it, to mortify it, and to make sure that we take action, that it's not this general idea of just, hey, kill sin. All right, great. Let's, let's kill sin. Well, Paul gives us a hit list of sins that we are to take aim at and kill. All of them having to do with sins committed with our bodies. He could admit, the list could have been 20 or 30 more things, but, but we should get the sense of, of the, the sin that we are to take aim at and kill with these five sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says, don't play with these sins, Christian. For on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. These are, not, these are not little things. These are not light things because of sin, but also not, not to be general, specific, because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. We are no longer under condemnation, and yet God's judgment is coming on those who are outside of Christ who have not taken cover underneath the cross because of sin. Don't play with it. Then in verse 8, we're told to put all sin away. And then we're given another list of sins that we're not to do. This list focuses on our relationships with one another. We Christians must put away sinful anger. Yes, we love to talk about the righteous anger, Jesus flipping tables in the temple. We go to that. But the, the reality is, anger is most often, especially as it is, is, as it is dealing with people in Scripture, it is sinful. It's sinful anger that comes out of pride. It comes from a place that is not righteous and good. Sure, there's righteous anger, but the focus here is on sinful anger, which we tend to commit more than the righteous anger. He also lists wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. Paul says, don't do these things, Christian. Don't be content with them. If you're doing these things, don't dismiss them. Don't justify them. Put them away. The final command in the previous passage is that we are not to lie to one another. It's as if having called Christians to fight sin, Paul knows that they're going to hear this thing in community. This is how it was often, uh, off, the letters were often shared. They would gather together. We've just gotten a letter from Paul. They'd sit down, they'd hear the letter, and he knows that as they're reading through this section of his letter, people are going to start saying, how can I hide this sin? How, how can I avoid having to deal with the sin that's in my heart, whether it's anger or sexual immorality or, or malice? How can I do that? And, and so Paul says, hey, don't lie, Christian. Put these things to death, put them away, and oh yeah, don't lie about your struggles with sin to your other brothers and sisters in Christ. These verses call us to take action. They're not passive. They're not suggestions. They're not, hey, if you want to try, Christian, do they? No, you need to do these things. You need to fight against your sin, kill it, put it away, stop it. But Christ-centered sanctification is not just about doing, is not just about not doing what is sinful and dishonoring to the Lord. It's also about doing what is good, righteous, and God-glorifying. Maybe you've had a teacher at some point in your life or, or a parent has done this where they, they just tell you not to do certain things. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Sit down. Da, da, da. There's this constant don't, 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 don't. Now, we need to be told what not to do. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. You'll burn yourself, son. Sometimes I find myself kind of getting in this trap. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I have four boys. They're crazy, wild, rowdy boys sometimes. And I find myself, don't, 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 don't. Well, it's important for a good teacher, a good parent, to not only say what not to do, but what we are to be doing. And so Paul shifts now from the don'ts to the do's in this passage. He tells us what we, who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, are to be doing if we are pursuing holiness, Christ-centered sanctification. And so in verse 12, we find Paul's first instruction as to what we Christians are to do. We are to put on, then, as God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Just let that settle in for a second. Fight sin, kill it, get rid of it, put it away. What are you going to do? What are you supposed to do now? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's what we're called to put on. And the imagery used here is that of getting dressed, putting on a pair of pants or a shirt. And this fits with the previous section in which we're instructed to get rid of our sin, to put it away, to take it off. Now that we are Christians, now that God has saved us out of wickedness and wretchedness, well, he's given us new clothes to put on. But before Paul describes our spiritual dress code, he tells us the reason why we are to put on compassionate hearts, why we're to put on kindness and humility and meekness and patience. We're to put these things on church because we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Christian, God chose you. Not because you were better, more deserving, or more wonderful than anyone else. Not because you're beautiful or handsome. And he just had to have someone just like you with him in heaven for all of eternity. No, he chose you for his own glory. That's why he chose you. There's nothing in you that says God had to choose you. There's nothing within you that says God picked you because of this. No, he chose you for his own glory because he decided to choose you. He chose to save you from his righteous wrath against your sin by his sovereign, free, electing grace. Not because of who you are, but because of what he is and what he decided to do. So God the Father sent God the Son on a mission to live a sinless life and to die a sinner's death on your behalf. Jesus came to be your sin-atoning substitute so that you could be declared righteous by God on the basis of Christ's righteousness. It's beautiful. Because God has justified you, you are holy in his sight. And now the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, emphasis on holy. Are you holy before God? Well, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you. So that assures you that he's good with you. He's declared you righteous. He's even given you his spirit. The third person of the Trinity is in you. And not only that, but God has set his love on you, his unconditional, matchless, amazing love. You did not earn his love. He set it on you. Well, this break in verse 12 between the command to put on and the list of five attributes that we are to put on is so helpful. It reminds us that the reason we Christians are to to do certain things like put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience is not to get God to choose us, to say, hey, hey, look at me. Look how compassionate I'm being. God, pick me, pick me, come on. It's not like we're in a draft, we're lined up, it's kickball at recess, and we just need God to pick us. Look at, I'm growing in kindness, God. You, you know, just like the, the kid who's maybe doing some, some leg work so he can kick the ball further. It was always my dream as a kid growing up to be a professional kickball player until I found out there, there isn't a professional kickball team. But it's not that we're, we're working to try and get God to choose us. It's, it's not that we're, we're trying to, to be holier so, so God would pick us or to earn God's love. No, we are to put on these things because God has chosen us already, because he has declared us righteous, and because he loves us, because we're God's people, because we are his children. We're to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience Friends, what's important for us to notice is that all of these things that we're told to put on in this passage are attributes of God. 
that are uniquely revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ has a compassionate heart. Christ is kind. Christ is humble. Christ is meek. Christ is patient. So let's look closer at this list of five attributes that are true of God, that are found in Christ, and we are to put on as God's chosen, holy, and beloved people. The first is compassionate hearts. Over and over and over again, as we read through the Gospels, we see that Christ had a compassionate heart towards people. This is one of the, ri- the reasons why, as we read the Bible with non-Christians or new Christians, we especially aim at the Gospels. We want them to encounter who Christ is. And, and as they read through Mark's Gospel or Luke's Gospel, they, they encounter a God who is compassionate. In Matthew 9, 36, Jesus had compassion for the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the confusion of their lives, that they were, they were misguided, that they had, they had no clarity. They did, they did not have a leader. And so he was, he was burdened for them and he had compassion on them. Later in Matthew 14, 14, Jesus has, a, has compassion on a crowd of people. So he stops, he's going somewhere and he stops to heal the sick that were among them. A chapter later in Matthew 15, Jesus saw that the over 4,000 people, or just 4,000 men, that doesn't include the number of women and children, these 4,000 plus people who had come to hear him preach were hungry, and his compassion for them caused him to perform another miracle, feeding all of them with only seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. If you look at the miracles, not only do they display who Christ is as far as his power and his sovereignty over creation, they do that, but they also display his compassion. His miracles are compassionate. Jesus' compassion for others caused him to take action for the good of others. This church is to be true of us as well. We are to have compassionate hearts for one another and others because our God is compassionate. It's not an option. You might say, you know what? I just naturally, I'm not a very compassionate person. That's not one of my, I have other traits. I have other attributes. I have other skills, but, but compassion is not one that I naturally gravitate. I don't care. <laughs> And more importantly, it doesn't matter if I care. God doesn't say, you know what? It's okay that you're not compassionate. No, you are to put on compassionate hearts, Christian. The second trait that we're to put on is kindness or goodness, which is described in one commentary as a gracious sensitivity toward others that is triggered by genuine care for them. Seeing people, interacting with people, being concerned for them, The Bible speaks of God's kindness often. It is God's kindness that leads people toward repentance, Romans 2, 4. And in Titus 3, 4, and 5, we read, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The reason, Christian, why you are saved is because God is kind. He is good. We are to be kind and good like him. The next two qualities are humility and meekness. They're similar, and so we're going to look at them together. Now, meekness does not mean weakness, but gentleness. It is, as one commentator puts it, strength under control. The person who is meek does not seek to overpower others, to control others for their own selfish benefit, but uses their strength for the betterment of others. C.S. Lewis made a statement about humility that has been paraphrased. And I think the paraphrase is better than the original statement. 
Uh, and and he, he said in a paraphrase this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Someone who is humble puts the interests of others ahead of their own. Humility often describes one's attitude towards themselves and, and in comparison with others. Well, meekness describes one's, one's attitude towards others. Humility and meekness re- are related to one another. And, and here's the thing, they don't describe a doormat. I think oftentimes in our world, because of kind of the competition and, and how, how so often we, we think we have to put others down and if other people put us down, we're a doormat. These words like humility and meekness are, oh, that's not attractive. But, but these words don't describe a doormat. They describe Jesus Christ. These are words that are attributed. These are attributes that are found in Jesus. We're told in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. You want to know what a strong man looks like in a world that's kind of constantly trying to figure out what manhood and woman looks like? A world that right now, and especially in our culture, has kind of shifted from like the Rambo mentality to like don't be strong at all mentality on what a, what a man is. You want to know what, the, what, what real manhood looks like? You look to Jesus. He's the, he's the perfect picture of, of what a, a perfect human being, not just a man, but a perfect human being looks like. And guess what? He's humble and meek. One scripture that especially speaks of Christ's humility and meekness is Philippians 2, 3 through 8. And I know I haven't put all these scriptures on the screen. We're kind of going through many fast, but I think this is one that would be especially helpful to turn to. So turn back towards Genesis just a little bit and go to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8. This is our Savior. This is our King, the one that we're to grow in likeness towards. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Savior is humble and meek. And so we are also to follow in his footsteps and pursue humility and meekness. We're to put these things on. Well, the last attribute that Paul tells us to put on is patience. Patience can be described as having the ability to endure and not become frustrated with or enraged at the shortcomings of others. Patience means extending grace to those who are really difficult, frustrating, negative, maybe even immature. This is hard. Patience. But this is what we're called to do. Just think about patience for a minute. Think about God's patience towards you. We'll look at this a little bit more in in a few minutes. But but just think about how patient God has been with you. You're, you're maybe right now you're struggling. You think of patience, and then, and then if, you're, if you're allowing God to probe your heart with his word, you're thinking, okay, I can be patient with these people, and you can come up with a list, 10, 20 people. And then the, the people that really make it hard for you to be patient, maybe there's a, hopefully it's a shorter list, but there's a list of people. 
And, and then you start to justify, you start to explain, well, th- this is why. They're like this. They're mean. They root all, they're rude. All they do is turn every single conversation into a conversation about themselves. They're like this. They're like that. I've tried to, well, here, here, here's what you need to do. Remember God's patience towards you. 1 Timothy 1.16 is a great passage in which Paul speaks of Christ's patience. Paul writes, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let's think for, for a little bit here about the patience that Jesus showed towards Paul. Paul was on an evil mission. He thought he was doing God's will and he was set out to destroy the church. He wanted to imprison Christians, throw them in jail, throw away the key. He wanted to hand them over to people that wanted to kill them. So he's interacting with all these Christians and and he's seeing these Christians putting these attributes on and and he's throwing them in prison. He's he's, he's there watching the the stoning of Stephen. He's, He's there. And what is Jesus doing? Being patient. Patient with Paul. So patient. Here's this man on a mission to destroy Christ's church. And, and he puts people in his life, like Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Other people that he was, he was attacking and, and convinced were, 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 were wrong. He puts these people in Paul's life and, and he waits. And he's working in Paul's hard heart. And then he appears to him on the road to Damascus and, and he opens his eyes. Think about all the patience that God was showing to Paul. And Paul says, I, I know that God is patient because I can just look at my life and see how patient he's been with me. As uh, Erlene mentioned when we started Colossians 3, there's this great connection here to adoption. And we are a church that God is moving in to, to do foster care and adoption because we see it in Scripture as a, as a good thing, a way to glorify God, to love other people. And I want to return to that illustration that Erlene used earlier. Think about a, a baby that's adopted into a family. Now, they're going to look a little different, maybe even a lot different from the rest of their adopted family. But over time, as they grow and they mature, that adopted child will likely become more and more like their adoptive parents. Now, their ears won't shrink or get bigger. Their, their um, complexion probably won't change, I guess, if they're in the sun a lot because this, this family is out in the sun a lot. You know, we, could, we could go into all these, but, but, but here's my point. That child's likely going to talk like their parents. They're going to they're going to use words like their parents. They're, they're going to be interacting with the family members if there's other siblings. And they're going to be shaped and molded by that family, that new family that's adopted them. Well, the same goes for us, church. We Christians are going to look different from one another. After all, we're all adopted. We've all come into God's family, not by natural birth, but by the miraculous new birth, a work of the Holy Spirit. We were dead in our sin, and then God made us alive in Christ. We've all come into God's family this way. Some of us will have black skin, others white or brown. Some of us will be tall, others short. Some of us will have big ears and little ones, or vice versa. Or if you're like me, you'll have both. But because we've been adopted into the same spiritual family, as we grow and we mature in Christ, as we're sanctified, we will increasingly display the same traits as our adopted father as our Father who has adopted us. 
We will put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience because these are five of our spiritual family attributes. They're true of God, and as we grow in holiness, they will be seen more and more in all of us. So you see, the, these five traits or attributes are, are not merely a list of things to do, as if the goal in sanctification is to go from like a 25% in, in a compassionate heart to like a 70%, a C grade. The goal is not to increase our, our, maybe we have a failing grade in patience. A lot of us struggle with patience. We pray for patience. We're like, this is a fruit of the Spirit. Come on, Spirit's in me. Bring out patience. And it's not as if in, in, in our pursuit of holiness, in, 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 our, in the goal of sanctification, we're, we're trying to just improve from a failing grade in patience to a passing grade. No, God has made us his people. He has reconciled us to himself through his Son, and he has given us his Spirit. In sanctification, we're not becoming more and more of this abstract thing called holiness. We're becoming more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our elder brother. There's something else important to realize about the five attributes that Paul tells us to put on in in verse 12. They all relate to to how we, we interact with one another. That is, they are practically, if you want to, how do we put these on? They're practically put on in the context of relationships. And Paul's focus in this passage is especially on our relationships with, with the Christians in our church. Now, some of us tend to think that if we're truly growing and maturing in Christ, we will be accomplishing all these great things for God. Maybe you've had dreams about being a successful evangelist, not necessarily a full-time evangelist, but every time you open your mouth and share the gospel, you just see all these people just receiving Christ trusting in Jesus, saying, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Jesus that you just told me about is my Savior, and I want to I follow him. Or, or maybe, maybe you think that if you're really growing spiritually, well, then you'll be in full-time ministry, or you'll become a missionary, or, or maybe you'll even become a martyr for Christ. Now, these are good ambitions to want to do these great things for God, to be used to reach the lost, to want to serve the church, to bring the gospel to the nation, nations, and to lose your life for the sake of Christ. They're all good ambitions. But based on this morning's passage, the real evidence, the real fruit of your sanctification, Christian, of your conforming to the, to the image of Jesus Christ, will not be that you are necessarily doing all these great things for God. It will be that you have a compassionate heart towards other Christians that you are kind to your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you are growing in humility by putting the needs of others first, that you are meek using your strength to serve others, that you are being patient with Christians, especially those who you find really difficult. This is wonderful because it takes, you know, this this dream that we might have of, if if I'm really following Christ, it's going to look like this. And then it brings it down to our level right now in our lives. How are you treating other Christians? What are your relationships like with other people in this church? And not just in this church vaguely, but in this room right now. Because if you want to know how your sanctification is really going, how you're growing in Christ, well, you need to look at the relationships you have with people, people in your church. How are you treating your brothers and sisters in Christ? See, God uses our relationships with others. Yes, our family members, certainly, our friends, our coworkers, and especially our relationships with one another in the church to make us more and more like Jesus. Have you thought about that with relationships? With, with relationships in the church? That God has a grand purpose for relationships with, with people. 
And it's this, your holiness. He's using people in your life. And sometimes you don't really want him to use them this way because they're, they're, they're forcing you to, to go to him over and over and say, I am struggling with this person. It's really hard to be patient. It's really hard to be kind. It's really hard to be meek because they are not patient. They're not kind. They're not meek. And in all that, what's happening? As you trust in the Lord, as you obey his word, you're becoming more and more like Christ. So do you think about relationships in the church like this? That God has given these relationships to you, not so that you would just have friends. I love friends in the church. I love Christian friends. It's so helpful. It's so good. It's so beneficial. If you don't have Christian friends, you need to have some brothers and sisters that, that know you well, that know your weaknesses and your strengths, that are like mirrors that can help you see your blind spots. You need to cultivate Christian friendships. But sometimes we think about those Christian friendships and they, they're not really Christ-centered. They're, they're Christian, but they're kind of not really Christian because you don't talk about Jesus with these friends. You happen to go to the same church, but, but you, you're not digging in. You're not pursuing holiness together. Well, well that's God's plan for these relationships, that, that they would be used to make you more and more holy. It's as if the church is like a weight room for our sanctification. This is where we're doing some lifting, patience and kindness and goodness. And the reality is that as we live in community with others in the local church, we're going to sin against each other. We're going to have conflicts. We're going to have disagreements. Someone is going to say something or do something that offends us, or we're going to say or do something that offends someone else. We're going to sin against people, and people are going to sin against us in the church. Every local church, including this one, is full of people who struggle with sin. And yet, God has called us to grow and to love and to worship and to treasure Christ together. And as we do that, what's going to happen? We're, we're going to struggle with sin. Our sin, their sin. So what should we do when other Christians sin against us? What if you are seeking to put on what you're supposed to put on? A compassionate heart and kindness and humility, meekness and patience. But someone else doesn't seem to be committed to putting on what they're supposed to be putting on. You're doing it. You're, you're, you're really seeking to be paid. You're going to them. Maybe they've sinned against you and, and, and you, you seek to reconcile. You work through that. You're talking. You're doing it as Scripture calls you to do. You're, you're going to them. You're not slandering them. But then you hear they're slandering you. They're talking behind your back. And, and it's not just trying to get counsel, but they're, they're throwing you under the bus. What happens when it doesn't seem like this is working, at least... It's not, it's not easy. It's not working the way you want it. You know what I'm getting at? The what ifs, the yeah buts. And we, we do that all the time. We read a passage, yeah but, yeah but. <laughs> but what if? And it's as if Paul anticipating this what if question is led by the Holy Spirit to write verse 13. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's as if Paul, in a patient, kind, meek, humble way, shuts our mouths with the what-ifs and the yeah-buts. Bear with one another. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. This is God's counsel to us when relationships in the church are hard. 
And it's so good. It's so right. You read these, you say, that's beautiful. I love the idea of what you're saying, Paul. I love the idea. Because it's so gospel-centered. That is, that is gospel-centered right there. But as we seek to apply this, we know that it's going to be hard. Bear with one another. You know what that means? That means don't give up on each other. We've got to pursue unity in the church. We've got to be willing to work through conflict. Rather than give up on each other, we've got to, we've got to go to one another, which is going to require that we forgive each other. And we can forgive one another because we have been forgiven so much. When we remember the truth of the gospel that we ourselves were sinners deserving of God's judgment, of condemnation, and we were headed towards hell, but that Christ left the glory of heaven. Angels were singing praises to him that were way more beautiful than my voice and your voice. For all of eternity past, he's there receiving the glory that is due his name in the heavens. And yet, Jesus comes to this fallen world to die for me and for you. And because of him, we've been forgiven by a holy God. Well, this gospel reality fuels us Christians, or it ought to fuel us Christians, to forgive others, especially other Christians. Christian, are you willing to bear with and forgive others? Or other people, even people in this church that you have, been, you have given up on and are unwilling to forgive. As God's chosen one, holy and beloved, you are to bear with and forgive. God hasn't given up on you. And God keeps forgiving you. Just think about that for a minute. How patient God has been with you over your entire life various sins that you have struggled with that, that, you, that you've returned to. Or maybe you have a, a testimony in which you were saved at 50 or 60 or 70 years. 50, 60, 70 years of God being patient with you, brother, sister in Christ. How can you be patient with others? Well, you've got to remember how patient God has been with you. And not only that, but how many times. Yes, he's forgiven you. The work of Christ is finished. He, he died for your sin, not just in general, but specifically for your sin at the cross to pay for all of it. But you experience that forgiveness in real time as you go to him and you repent and you enjoy the forgiveness that he gives you over and over and over again. So who are we? How can we not forgive others who sin against us? You see the disconnect if that's the, the tone, the direction we go? And it can be so hard. I'm with you. I know it. I'm living this. It's hard. It's hard to bear with Others, it's hard to forgive others when they hurt you. And yet, and yet it's been said that we are never more like God than when we forgive. And that's what sanctification is about, becoming more like Jesus, growing in holiness. We want it to be, you know, I, I just, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not, I'm not looking at this on the computer. I'm not treating my wife this way. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But it's also these wonderful and yet very difficult realities that are played out in relationships within the church, family, co-workers, all that, but within the church. So I encourage you today to consider this passage and apply it to your relationships with your family, with your friends, with your co-workers, but especially with your church. Remember, I'm not getting up here to entertain you. We're not going through the motions. This isn't formalistic where you just oh, check the box. We read the word and I seek to faithfully preach it. And then we as a church together seek to apply it. And so here's the application. Are you doing this church? 
Are you seeking to grow in holiness? Not so, not so that you could just do these great things, but so that you would love and cherish and bear with and forgive others. And so let me be even more specific. Parents, you need to bear with and forgive your children. And some of you who have maybe adult children who are wandering and who are wayward, you know, and all this plays out. And you need, I, I'm, not, I'm not just saying the simplistic, overly simplistic statement that just covers up all the history and all the experience. I, I get that. There's difficulties. But the reality is that you need to bear with and forgive your children. Children, you need to bear with and forgive your parents. And that's not just speaking to little children. That's speaking to you grown-ups who are children of somebody. Husbands, you need to bear with and forgive your spouse. Wives, you need to bear with and forgive your husband. Church member, you need to bear with and forgive other church members. This brings us to verse 14, where Paul tells us to put something else on, and it's to be put on above all. Love. Love is above all to be put on because it binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's not that we can forget about compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's that love brings all of these attributes together. The word translated as binds means the fastening together of separate items, which are thus brought together into unity. What a beautiful picture. That's what's to happen in the church. Separate individual people, Christians, saved by God's grace and for his glory, coming together, being knit together in a local church. And, and what is it that is knitting us together? It's love. And Paul is not just calling for individual Christians to pursue sanctification. He's calling for unity which will be the result of Christians truly, truly growing in holiness. I thought we were talking about sanctification, and now, now all of a sudden it's all about unity and togetherness and love. Well, I hope you see the connection here. If you're truly, truly growing in holiness, you will be pursuing unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the outworking. That is the real fruit. That is what it looks like. We're a spiritual family. Yes, with all of our brothers and sisters throughout the world, whether they're in Tirana or Senegal or Brazil or Canada or wherever. But this plays out in real time here. Dick Lucas makes this very point in his Colossians commentary, writing, Unity is the main theme of the whole section, referring to this passage, this whole chapter, really. The appeals for open truthfulness with one another and for a spirit of forgiveness and mutual tolerance sharply demonstrate Paul's concern for unity in the local church, a concern which governs all that he writes from verse 9 to verse 17. Miss this, and we read the paragraph in vain. See, friends, it's not our politics that has brought us together. We, we have differing views on, on political things in this church. It's not even our country of origin. By God's grace, God has brought other people from other countries that were born in other places into this body, and that's a beautiful thing. It's not our preferences in worship that has brought us together. It's not our educational background or our stage of life. Praise God. I don't want to just hang out with people my age. No, I need to hang out with younger and older people, and you need to hang out with younger and older people than you. That's not what has brought us together, our stage of life, or our, our sports teams. It's not even our friendships that brings us together and keeps us together. It is love. And that's why in his closing words to, to a, a church that is being persecuted and, and likely at some point going to be tempted to turn on one another, Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You're going to sin. 
If you, if you hang out, if you're committed to the local church, if you're all in, you're going to be sinned against and, and, and you're going to sin against other people. And yet we're called to bear with one another through that, to love each other, to forgive one another. Church, love is going to fuel us to have compassionate hearts towards others, to be kind and humble, meek and patient with one another. It's no accident that love is listed in Galatians 5.22 as the first fruit of the Spirit because love brings everything together. I oftentimes, and, and even just last night, Amy and I were, were talking. We try to have a little bit of time together to just kind of talk about things, how the family's doing, things that we need to address. And um, one of the things that we're especially burdened for is our, our boys' love for one another. And I know people, sibling rivalry and all that stuff. We desperately want our kids to love each other. How much more does our Heavenly Father want us Christians to love one another? We've been adopted. We are members of the same family. How it grieves us earthly parents to see our children not loving one another. How much more does it grieve our Heavenly Father to see his children not loving one another? Well, 1 John 4 is a great passage for us to, to have in mind as we, as we close in Colossians in this passage. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, church, it is because of the gospel, it's because we are gospel people, saved by God's grace and loved by God, that we can, and, and the word used in 1 John is we ought to love one another. In their book, Counsel from the Cross, Connecting Broken People to the Love of Christ, Elise Fitzpatrick and Dennis Johnson write, the gospel changes everything about us. Most particularly, it changes how we love and treat others. Soaking ourselves in the astounding love of God for us, weak and sinful as we are, will cause us to become people who love. The pure, undefiled Prince of Heaven, Jesus Christ, was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It should be obvious that he loves sinners because he has loved us. Living in the light of this truth will enable us to love it will remove all of our self-righteousness and craving for respect. It will free us to lay down our lives and not keep a running tally of who sins most or who serves most. And it will make us patient and gentle. The gospel is the environment for all our relationships. The gospel teaches us to love. The gospel is the environment of all of our relationships. What a beautiful line to have in mind. You might say, well, I don't really like people. <laughs> It's just the reality. This is great. I believe it. It's true. We have love, love, great. Bind together. Beautiful. But I don't love people, or I don't really like people. I know I'm supposed to love them. But Christian, if you love God, it's not an option. You must love people. The Holy Spirit is in you. And what are his fruits? Starting with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. There's an overlap here with the fruits of the Spirit and what Paul is telling us to put on here. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if you, if you don't want to hear from me, you've got to hear it from God. 
his word right there. You must love your brother, your sister. So church, if we're growing in holiness, we will be growing in Christ-likeness. We will treat others the way that Christ treats people. This passage reminds us that sanctification doesn't happen in isolation. It happens within community. It happens as we live life together as Christians in a local church, as we worship Sunday after Sunday. We, we go through the ups and downs. We celebrate together. We mourn together. We struggle together. We sin against one another. We, we, we work through these things and we put on patience and kindness and meekness and humility, compassionate hearts. And all of it's bound together with our love for God and for one another. And that's, above all, what we need to put on, love, which binds us together. Let's pray. God, I do once again desire to confess that personally I have so often not done these things and I struggle to do them. Lord, help me. Help us as a local church to to obey your word. Words that come to us from a perfect wonderful Heavenly Father who longs for his people to love one another as he loves us more and more. Help us to do that, Father. We thank you for your spirit that is not merely us trying to find within ourselves to muster up the, the patience and the humility and the meekness, but, but these things are all, are all available to us, these attributes, because we are united to Christ We are united to him, our Savior and Lord. We have been adopted. We are are your children. And so, Father, in the the coming hours, minutes and hours and days, help us to, to apply your word to our relationships with family members and friends and coworkers, and especially with those in our local church. Father, we need your help. We will justify reasons why we shouldn't do this. We will explain and make excuses, but... We want to grow in holiness. We want to be more like your son and our savior, Jesus. And so this is going to need to happen. We pray that you would help us do it all for your glory and our ultimate joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.